0: month of October, traditionally, I have tried to uh, preach in this month because it's like the beginning um, of our church year. You know, it's kind of weird how churches do that, but October is like month one of the, the 2021 2022 church year, kind of like a semester, I guess. Um, and so that means our church is 57 years old, I think. Somebody do the math. 20, uh, 2021. Minus 20, or (laughs) 1964. Um, I think we're 57. um, And uh, throughout the month of October, I've tried to drive home our mission, our purpose, why we exist, and to set our hearts afresh for the rest of the year, for for what our aim is, what our goals are, who we desire to be, what we desire to do. And here we are in this unique month. um, We are replanting, and it has been a crazy year. It's been real wild. Five years ago, I never in a hundred years of ministry would have prophesied half of the things that took place this last year. There have been some really exciting, wonderful, joyful days of, of ministry. We've seen baptisms. Uh, we've, we've seen good work. We've seen people grow. Um, but there's also been conflict. There's been division. There have been unexpected goodbyes. And, just if I'm completely honest, I'm tired. I think many of you are probably tired as well from this last year. But, we know Paul said he was exhausted himself. But always abounding in the work of ministry. Never willing to give up. So friends, I'm here before you, telling you this morning... I'm not willing to give up either. If you're still willing to fight and give this all we've got and ask the Lord's blessing over this church and run hard after the harvest, I'm willing to do so as your pastor. In August 2021, the replant began. I called us to change or die. We were six months deep into a pandemic. We had been doing the same old, same old. And simply put, we were not making disciples Change at a faster pace became necessary if we were going to have a church at all. Either we could die slowly on a ventilator or we could get after it, right? Um, And so we took great risk by seeking change at a faster place. Amid some confusion about what replanting actually means, the sentiment of many of you in our church I think was relatively optimistic. You know? Um, We want... Something new to happen. We see that, that we, we want our church to grow. We want something good to happen here. Right? Um, so we began prayer and fasting once um, a week for the next four months after that. Uh, then we developed a replant team of about ten people to meet twice a month to put biblical blueprints over our church and what the Lord desires us to be as the body of Christ. Uh, and then... We started to dream about how to put that into action. All the while, I was preaching replant-based sermons, dealing with change and anxiety, the power of prayer, church government, ecclesiology, how we're supposed to operate according to the Bible, worship, the fellowship of the saints, the great commandment to love one another and love the Lord, and the great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples. And finally, nearing the, uh, the summertime, we began to implement some actual change. We had conversations about updating our facilities. We spent $15,000 still working on that. We talked about practicing meaningful membership and cleaning up the roles. We talked about officially, for once and all, for all, moving to an elder-led congregational church model. We talked about not using patriotic gestures in our worship services, but worshiping the Lord alone. We talked about changing service times. We talked about uh, doing away with Wednesday nights, learning some new songs, swiping out Sunday school with Core Doctrine, and installing small groups. The rubber hit the road. We started doing stuff. We started making changes. And our already small group of replanters Lost 18 members. And I'm talking about 18 members who were here. Not people who were like floating about. We'd already sort of lost to the pandemic. People who were here every week. That hurts, man. You know? And I love these people. um, And I don't want to be too hard on them. uh, But I do believe that many chose death over change. They would rather leave the church. And just let whatever happens happen and seek a better day for it. And so now we're in a vulnerable spot. Our reputation in the community, I believe, has gone down, not up. Financial giving is getting lower every week, maybe lower than I've seen it in five years. We have a huge void of church leadership and elders and deacons. Half of our facility upgrades are unfinished, and the people who we thought were going to help with them have left. Thanks for working on the floors yesterday, Stephen. There's literally a giant water leak under the pavement outside. Water is bubbling up, shooting up under the church sign. One of our main AC units doesn't work with a major power issue, a fuse box that needs to be repaired. And here I am showing up every Sunday saying, we're replanting for the glory of God. You know? And I feel like if I don't take this month to address the obvious elephant in the room... That we started like this, you know, and then towards the end, like this. We can't just ignore the way things are. My job is to shepherd you through these things, right? How do we respond to all that's happened this past year? We can, one, admit defeat, say we tried our best, start making arrangements for who gets the keys to the church building. That's one thing we can do. Or we can say that because a bunch of bad stuff has happened, God must be cursing us because of some kind of sin we committed and he does not approve of our replant. So say, God, God's glory has departed. This place is Ichabod. We should give up on it. Or three, we can say that it is the regular pattern of the New Testament church to suffer while doing good, to rejoice in our weaknesses, and actually believe that God brings dead things to life. Do you believe that God brings dead things to life? Has your heart been brought from death to life? And I'll be honest, at least four or five days out of the week, I'm in that last camp. I believe the Lord is still working among us, and wonderful, good things can happen. I'm optimistic about God's sovereignty and His power. But there's still two or three days of the week where I'm just drowning in discouragement. I mean, it... Am I not allowed to say that? (laughs) I don't know. It's hard. So over the next three weeks, I want to dive into our mission, our purpose as a church. But I also want to do two other things. One is I want to convince you that this is still worth fighting for. I want to convince you that this is still worth fighting for. The second thing I want to do is tell you that I really need help. We had a replanting team of ten people and then five of them left. Uh, we need collaboration. Solo preachers don't plant churches. I can't plant this church. I can't replant us, right? I need your help. You guys are the replanting team now, right? We can sit down and have a chat when you start talking in circles, like in a big group. Because um, it's up to you guys, right? I need your help. I need your help. The harvest is plenty. It's always been plenty. It's the laborers that have been few. So, for the first Sunday, in my best attempt to persuade you to keep fighting, we turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah is a prophet assigned the great task of warning Israel about their coming judgment. Spoiler alert, basically the task of every major and minor prophet uh, to basically warn about Israel and Judah. Not always Israel and Judah, but God's wrath is coming because of your sin. Jeremiah was treated poorly because of his role as an accuser, A spokesperson for the Almighty. He was grieved for Israel's rebellion. He was treated awfully. Beaten. Accused. Mocked. uh, Over 40 years of preaching. God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. What a faithful example for us, right? Um, But today's text doesn't deal so much with Jeremiah's regular ministry. But instead we have a positive prophecy from the Lord that Jeremiah is now to give to Israel. The majority of the book is sad, it's full of judgment. There's famine, sword and death, famine, sword and death, famine, sword and death. But there are glimmers of hope hidden in the book, including beautiful promises of Christ appearing as, and ruling as king. It starts in Jeremiah chapter 23. There is a prophecy of a righteous branch from the offspring of David who will rule and the people will say, The Lord himself is our righteousness. And then it uh, takes a break from that in Jeremiah 30 through 33, uh, which is where we find our text today, there is expounding on those promises that God will eventually restore Israel, turn their mourning into joy because of a king that's coming through the offspring of David. Now the book ends with Jerusalem laid, you know, bare, wasted, destroyed, ruined by the Babylonians. That's how the book ends. But there's a promise of hope that even Gentiles like us can cling to. It's the promise of a new covenant. The promise of a new covenant that was a glorious hope for the people of God in the Old Testament and ought to give us on this side of the age even more glorious hope than they had because we are in it. We have the promise fulfilled. We have the new covenant given to us in Christ. For those folks, the Lord declared a future day in which he would make a new covenant with man revealed in the heart, not through the outward expression of the law, where we would all know God, all sin would be forgiven, and they would all look forward together to the new Jerusalem. Now, because our hearts have already been transformed by the power of the gospel through the new covenant given through Jesus, we worship joyfully as God's people, knowing that our sins have already been forgiven. He will never abandon us. And our future is absolutely glorious. It is not bleak. It is good. There is good coming for the church. So, we have three points about this new covenant. First, the inward nature of the new covenant. The perpetual nature of the new covenant. And the future of the new covenant. The inward nature of the new covenant. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming. This is a repeated phrase. The days are coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord now what are the coming days that Jeremiah through the Lord is talking about here we're on the other side of history this isn't a this isn't a trick question right we should actually know the answer to this days that are coming because the day came how do we know that the day came because several things have taken place a new covenant has indeed been made with man the Lord throughout the Old Testament made various covenants Uh, covenants that were mainly conditional covenants. If you do this, I will do this. The word testament is another word for covenant. We have the Old Testament and the New Covenant. Literally, Old Covenant and New Covenant. Something has changed. In the Old Testament, we have the promise of God to build a nation from Abraham. That covenant was expounded upon as the nation was born. God gave them the law to keep them holy, to keep them separate from other peoples. The Lord took them out of Egypt through the Exodus, right? Read the book of Exodus, Uh, He gave the Mosaic Covenant law, Ten Commandments, written on tablets of stone. Israel and Judah, northern and southern kingdoms, were both in agreement to this covenant. But the problem is, they broke it. He says, even though you broke it. Even though I was your husband, you broke it. They committed adultery. Literally, he he mentions of when when he saved them from Egypt. And then Moses goes up the mountain and he comes back and what does he find? The golden calf debacle, right? And they're worshiping this calf that they had melted down and created for themselves out out of pagan jewelry. God was their God. They were his people. And they committed adultery against him. And they would continue to do that again and again and again and again and again. And Jeremiah says that their breaking of this covenant is why God is judging them throughout the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, it begins, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, just says the Lord, thus says the Lord. Here's how their relationship started. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. But he goes on in chapter 2 to say, Has this nation changed its gods, even though there are no other gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. But the Lord also said, even though his judgment, his wrath was coming for their sin, he said that he would continue to contend with Israel. For the sake of her children, for the sake of her offspring, for the sake of Abraham's many, many stars and sands on the seas. How would God do this? Well, first, he would let them suffer the wrath of the Babylonians. But then, a few generations later, God would initiate a new covenant. A covenant that he says is not like the old covenant. It's different from the old one. The old covenant was good. The law was good. Given that man not, might not sin against God and have a, a right way to live with Him. But this new covenant, y'all. It's going to take the cake. It's going to take the cake. Because it would come through unthinkable means. God Himself would descend upon the earth in the full nature of man. He would live faithfully to Himself the Father like Israel failed to do. And then He would die for the sins of the people living a sacrificial death Uh, and rising from the dead, taking a cup of wine, sharing it with his disciples, and saying in Luke chapter 22, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. We don't have to look any further for this day that Jeremiah prophesied about than in the very gospel of Jesus Christ. He ushered in the age of the new covenant. This very passage of scripture is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10 the author of hebrews grabs jeremiah 31 and explains uh, after he's talking about how the high priest would go before the people into the holy of holies and atone for sin after sin after sin after sin after sin year after year after year after year after year and they would continue doing this and it was never of enough but he quotes jeremiah 31 and says when jesus came the new high priest of a new and better covenant he died once and for all for sins A once and done sacrifice for our sins in the past, today and tomorrow, all atoned for forever for those who believe on Jesus Christ. And then he sat down at the right hand of God because the work was done, finished, completed, nothing left to do. He sat down, Hebrews 10 says. This is the new covenant in which you and I are adopted and purchased by the blood of Jesus, not by obedience to the law. That's good news. Read Galatians, right? Read some of these other New Testament letters. Romans. Paul talks all about it. Instead, in this new covenant, the law has not been written on stones for us to read and obey, but written on our hearts. Written on our hearts. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Every time you ever see that phrase, Old New Testament, you need to underline that. I will be their God. They will be my people. That right there is covenant language, the covenant love and relationship that God will continue with us no matter what. Our new mission statement as a church begins by saying, We are a church that is transformed by the power of the gospel. We are a church that is transformed by the power of the gospel. That means we are made up of people who don't just say Jesus is Lord. We are made up of people who have experienced a heart transplant. We are made up of people who, like Ezekiel 37, once were dead, like dry bones on the ground, and have been given flesh. The heart of stone has been broken, taken out, completely removed, and replaced with a heart of flesh. This is what conversion is. This is what God does when he breathes on dry bones. We come alive. This is the Lord writing his word on us. And it's only him, right? if, If we attempt to write the law on ourselves, we're still trying to obey the works of the old covenant. It's God and God alone who saves. This is good news. Why does he write it on our hearts, by the way? Because the heart... In biblical terminology is the central station of our persons. It is who we are. Jesus said, "From the heart comes all evil thoughts: murder, adultery, um, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony and slander. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is a deep well of poisoned water that condemns us to hell. We don't need just the, the law of God written on our bodies, or on our minds, or on our persons, whatever. We need it written on the most depraved central station of our wickedness, which is our hearts. We have to be made alive by the law of God through the blood of Christ. We must be circumcised in the heart in order to be saved. No man is saved. No man is transformed by the power of the gospel until hearts have been irreversibly changed. How do you know if you've been transformed by the power of the gospel? How do you know if you have the law of God written on your hearts? Thankfully, you don't have to have the first five books of the Bible memorized as the Old Testament dudes did, right? Maybe you would want to. That's probably a sign if you wish you had the whole Bible memorized. But the text tells us two identifiers. First, the Lord is their teacher. And two, their sins are forgiven. The Lord is your teacher. Is the Lord your teacher, church? He says in verse 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. He will be our teacher. Many of us, I think, Want his blood applied to our hearts, but we don't really want to obey him. And that is a crime called easy believism. I believe one of the biggest crimes of the Bible Belt. There is no ticket to heaven, there is no secret prayer we can pray, there is no coming down the aisle and raising our hand in front of the church. The Bible tells us that a heart must be awakened in an unmistakable way to the truth of God that changes us forever and makes us God's people. We are God's. Uh, we are His people, and 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 we are changed forever. That means, if God wakes up our dead hearts, we've been given new desires taught from Him by the Holy Spirit. That love His Word, love His Church, and love His glory. Love His word, love His church, and love His glory. His word is our ultimate and final authority. We eat it like bread. We can't get enough of it. We read it multiple times during our services. We preach it. We make it the, the foundation and delight of who we are. And His church is our new family. We are His people. Adopted into a kingdom of priests made holy by the Lord. We are His own family. We are not... United by our politics, our hobbies, our sport preferences, right? For crying out loud. What unites us? Welcome to the New Heart Club, right? You have a new heart too? Cool, so do I. Let's worship Jesus, right? This is what we come together in a commonality of. And this is why we love the church. And Jesus is the head over the church. We're his people now. We're his body and we also love his glory. Jesus quotes this verse in John chapter 6. You know what John chapter 6, what's going on there? Jesus feeds all those people and they come after him. They're following him. They're wanting the bread king. Give us more bread. This guy can make bread out of nothing, right? And he says, listen, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. It's, it's about me. It's not about literally bread here. I'm the manna come down from heaven so that your souls can feed and live. And they're all like, nah, we're out, you know, not interested, And what does Jesus say? He quotes Jeremiah 31 and says, And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. People with new hearts love the glory of God and desire him more than all the riches of earth. More about Jesus, Spirit of God, would my teacher be showing the things of Christ to me? Unless God be our teacher, we can understand nothing from Scripture. Unless well, God be our teacher. We cannot love him, love his church, or love his glory. But people with new hearts also know that their sins have been forgiven. People with new hearts still sin. We still sin, but we know that all is forgiven in Jesus Christ because of the work of the new covenant. And that's what's driven on those next few verses. Poetically spoken. Thus says the Lord, verse 35, Who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from me, but from before me declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. And verse 37, thus says the Lord, If the heavens Above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Then I will cast off the offspring of Israel, and all that they have done declares the Lord. This is the perpetual nature of the new covenant. The perpetual nature of the new covenant. What's the most dramatic and effective way God could make a promise? He can put all that he made on the line. All of his creation. He made it all, and all of it testifies to his faithfulness, his power, his authority. Veil vale and mountain, crashing sea, they testify to the authority of its maker. This is the same reason Jesus stopped the raging seas on the boat. Why? To show his authority, his equality with God, his authority over all creation. His authority is God's authority. So, in other words, He says, the moment the sun stops shining, the moment the fixed order of the moon and stars fall from the sky and lose their order, the moment the seas stop stirring and roaring with their waves, he stops being God. Because he is the one who upholds all of these things. If all of these things fall to chaos, God has left his throne but the sun's still shining, right? And I wasn't outside last night, but I think there was a moon and some stars. And just a few hours from here, there's oceans crashing against the wave, against the shores of North and South Carolina, which testify to the faithfulness of God's promises. If all creation falls apart, all the promises of God fall apart. But we will never see that day because God is holding those stars in place, keeping those waves crashing, and so is he keeping his word to us. He says, when that day comes, Israel and her offspring will cease from being a nation before me forever. He says it another way. If you can measure the heavens that I made or explore the depths of the earth that I fashioned with my hands, each individually, then I will cast off their offspring forever. But no one has been able to do it yet. We send up rocket ships. Jeff Bezos is trying hard. But the moment that all these things are finally explored, showing that the depth of God's creation and power and mind and authority can finally be understood, then he will be understandable and therefore no longer God. That day is not going to come. It's not going to come. And that's good news for us because it means he will never leave us or forsake us ever. And I won't get into this too much, but some of y'all think, right, this might be literally talking about a nation of Israel like we know today. But I'm pleased to tell you that Jesus and the author of Hebrews both interpreted this very passage in reference to Gentiles like you and me. People who were not ethnic, not circumcised, right? I know there's different views on Israel, the covenants, their place in God's history. But I'm telling you, and what we've told our children for centuries, we need to get right Father Abraham had many sons, and we are one of them. Not through our rights, our boasting through ancestry, but through the new covenant. We've been adopted in, grafted in, right? Christ came to be a light to the nations, drawing sheep from other sheepfolds into his own sheepfold. He's the door. He's the gate. Come through me. Right? Speaking to the Gentiles. Come in. Come in. Come in. Romans 11 teaches the Gentiles have now been grafted in. We are inheritors of these rich promises. As for Israel today, you know what they need to do? They need to repent and believe in the gospel, just like every single other nation on the planet. They need a Messiah. They have forsaken him. They need a Messiah. Boasting in their ancestry or trusting in the old covenant will not save them from the wrath to come. They need new hearts. They need to be transformed by the power of the gospel. As for the elect, which takes the new language in the New Testament, the church, the people of God, we have had our sins forgiven yesterdays, todays, and tomorrows. All our sin, totally forgotten, remembered no more. That's what makes this covenant distinct from the old one. Because we couldn't keep the law, right? So Jesus keeps it for us, right? This is why the old covenant was shaky, because we could not keep it. But Jesus fulfilled it. He kept it for us, which is why it's trustworthy. It's worth trusting in. We don't confess our sins every day like, Lord, please forgive me unless I go to hell tonight. We confess our sins because we know they are forgiven. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for sins every single day. The work is done forever. Forever, forever, forever. Every sin removed. So therefore, we want to be a church that lives in the freedom of no condemnation. He will not forsake us now, not uh, ever. When I made a covenant with Mariana. I told her that I would be her husband in sickness and in health forever, no matter what, till death do us part. In the same way, the Lord never leaves his people. Our church will continue to struggle. Do you know that? Our church will continue to struggle. We will have lots more bad days. I'm, I'll, I'm not a betting man, but I'll put money on it. We will have more hard days. But never, never. In a million, 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 million years, will anyone here with a new heart be condemned? Not going to happen. You have to shoot the sun out of the sky before that's going to happen. No condemnation for y'all people with new hearts. This church may one day close its doors. All this might go away and I won't be a preacher anymore. You'll be looking for a new church. Who knows what will happen to this church building. Things will change. Things have already changed drastically in this place. And we've been heartbroken. But the sun is still in the sky. So is the moon and the stars. So is the oceans. He will never cast us off. Never. Never. Take it to the bank. That's why the New Covenant particularly calls us to consider our future. The future of the New Covenant. And I'll end with this. The future of the New Covenant. Verse 38. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line shall go out farther, I love that, straight to the hill Gereb, Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, all the fields, as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall never be plucked up or overthrown anymore, forever. So again, he says, behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming. However, it's not to say uh, that there is the same day coming, but even another new day. Not only is there a day coming where the covenant between God and man will be new, unconditional, and based on the blood of Jesus, but there's also a day that he prophesies in his last few verses when simply things will not be so bad. There's coming a day where things will not be so bad. They will be quite the opposite. Jerusalem will die. The temple will be destroyed. The city of God will be utterly ruined, full of ashes and dead bodies. But he says, Behold... The city shall be rebuilt, not for man, but the city shall be rebuilt for the glory of the Lord. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, Gereb to Goa, the brook Kidron, the horse gate toward the east. All these relevant historical uh, uh, center points in Jerusalem referenced in other places in scripture. In fact, the the tower of uh, Hananel is where uh, Nehemiah begins working. Uh, All of these historical markers are important. In Jeremiah's day, they were filled with dead bodies. But they they, they would one day be a place that is sacred to the Lord. No longer a place of adultery and wrath and judgment. It will be a place that will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore, forever. The first day... That Jeremiah prophesied about a few verses ago is the day of the new covenant that you and I have been in since Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. That's the first day that he talks about. We're under that new covenant. We are living in it. We are taught by God. Our sins have been fully atoned for and forgiven forever. But now Jeremiah is talking about another day. A day that you and I are still looking forward to. Uh, A day when not a literal physical temple would be reconstructed somewhere in the Middle East. But a day in which the new city of God will descend from the heavens. As John saw in Revelation 21. A new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And then what does he see? I saw the holy city The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Is this not Jeremiah 31? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place from God, of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let me ask you a question. Is the future of the church bright bright? or dreary? Is it good or bad? We've heard one too many crazy prophecy preachers make ridiculous claims about the end times and the future of the church. And this pastor, your pastor, is telling you to stop caring so much about what the newspaper says, right? And start reading the Bible. What does the Bible say? The New Jerusalem is the elect from every tribe tongue and nation descending from the heavens coming to the earth to initiate the reign of christ over all the world forever and ever zechariah 14 says god himself will be our king there will be no other as he prophesies about the same day so honestly what do you believe about the future of the church Do you believe that he's sanctifying his bride right now through the work of the new covenant? Washing her, cleaning off her sin and calling others to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus? And you believe that when that sanctifying work is done and she's adorned as a beautiful bride ready to receive her husband that he will return and he will reign on earth, the new heavens, the new earth and we will be the new Jerusalem forever? Do you believe that? He says in verse 39, I love this too, that the measuring line shall go out farther, farther than it's ever gone before. And Jesus reveals himself to John in Revelation 11. You know what he tells John to do? He says, get out your measuring tape and measure the holy city. Measure it. See how big it is. It goes beyond Gerab and Goah." It goes to Africa, Asia, Australia, North America, South America, Europe. It goes to every corner of the earth as we make disciples from every corner of the earth for God's glory. And then Jesus is going to come. He's going to be king over all of it. We will be the new Jerusalem. The former things will have passed away. And all the earth, all the earth will be sacred unto the Lord. No more dead bodies, no more ashes, no more judgment. All of it will be sacred unto the Lord. God will dwell with man forever and sin will be done. Now some of y'all might think there's tribulation that we still have to endure. Some of y'all think it's just going to get better from here on out. Either way, guess what? We both agree that it's going to get better. If you read the Bible, you have to say it's going to get better. You can't say it's going to get worse. In other words, reading Jeremiah 31 would have instilled some good, glorious optimism for the people of Israel, even in the face of warfare and people dying. And so we too should be optimistic about the future of the church. Not because we're anything to write home about but because God keeps his word we trust that there is coming a day the city of God will no longer be plucked up or overthrown anymore people will no longer leave churches conflict and division will be a thing of the past churches won't have to be replanted as a last-ditch effort to stay alive all the ransom church of Christ will be saved to sin no more So here's what we ask ourselves as we await that glorious day. Are we sitting on the sidelines like a kid in time out? Waiting for Jesus to come and destroy everything. We can go be happy in heaven. Or are we following the call of Christ to be faithful to the end. To be the remnant. To usher in the kingdom of God on earth. Or are you kicking up your feet? Waiting for the new heavens and new earth to come. We must make disciples who will join us in the new Jerusalem and will descend down with us from heaven on the last day. That's the work we're about, right? Are you making new disciples? The Bible tells us our future is positive, it's glorious. Don't give up, don't stop. There is good stuff coming. We work like God is going to do something amazing through the fruit of our labor and then rebuild something new and wonderful for His glory. Why did He bring in the new covenant? To save people, right? To do it by the blood of His Son. We have work to do. Quite frankly, I don't know what the future of this church Looks like I don't know what tomorrow holds. And you don't either. But I know three things. Number one, no matter what happens, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number two, the Bible commands us to be optimistic about our future. I don't know if you're a pessimist. You don't you know, sign on to things quickly. You don't get happy about tomorrow. You're a Debbie Downer. The Bible condemns it. Behold, the days are coming! Behold, the days are coming! Behold, the days are coming! Number three, those who believe what the Bible says about our future, those who believe what the Bible says about our future will work seriously and joyfully to obtain it. Work seriously and joyfully to obtain it. We have a great commission. We're not just waiting on it, you know? We're doing it. We're doing it. We have a church that has been transformed by the power of the gospel. We have new hearts that are made alive by the Holy Spirit through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We will live by faith. We will be known by our love. We will worship the living God. We will treasure Jesus Christ. We will serve in the power of the Spirit. The Word of God is our foundation and our delight. We will be a voice of truth and hope for our community. We will seek out the lost for salvation. We will disciple all believers unto maturity in Christ. All for the glory of God alone. A church that is actively and diligently pursuing these things will not sit idly by while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. We will work for the good of the church until our prayers are answered. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Has the law of God been written on your heart? Is the Lord your teacher? Then follow Him. Follow Him who gave His own blood to make us ministers of a new covenant while we work toward the city that is to come. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the work of the new covenant that we take for granted all too easily, all too quickly. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you uh, for our glorious hope, our glorious future, our glorious inheritance that we have through Jesus. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray for us as a body to work together be unified by our our new hearts that we have. We have the same Father, the same Lord, the same Savior. And we would do the work of making disciples. And you would bless the efforts, the work of our labor until you come, until you return, until you make all things new. The future is indeed glorious. I pray for anybody here today that may not have new hearts, that they would repent of their sins today as you are drawing them by the power of the Holy Spirit, knocking on their hearts, Uh, literally drawing them to you, wooing them to you. Father, would you be their teacher? Transform their hearts now, even now. Father, for this replant, the rest of this month, the weeks to come, the preaching of sermons, gathering together for small groups doctrine and learning deeper and trying to invite people to church we ask that you would do a work that again you and you only can do a God who brings dead things back to life would you do it for your glory over every square inch of this earth would you do it in Christ's name we pray amen we'll have a time to respond now to God's word as he has spoken to us And we'll sing about a beautiful fountain that he is given. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com, or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.